Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 8, Creator Destroyer, directed by Matt Bomer, written by Tom Rob Smith. Later on in the episode, we will have a discussion between Richard and Matt Bomer. And throughout the episode, we'll be dropping in a few little extra snippets from Richard's conversation last week with Darren Chris. So heads up, we'll have some Darren Chris tidbits, some Matt Bomer discussion. Before we get to all of that, we want to run down the episode. Before we get to that, I wanted to say that earlier on this season... Richard and I had sort of talked about Creator Destroyer maybe being perhaps the best episode of the season, maybe the second best episode of the season. I was wondering upon rewatch, Richard, if if you still felt that way about Creator Destroyer. Um, I think it lacked a little of the surprise, you know, um, the second time around. Um, and I think that, as I've been saying for other episodes, I think the little the parallels between Versace and Cunanan are drawn maybe a little bit too neatly. Um, but it's still, um, a, a really strong episode and, um, John, John Briones, I think is how you say his last name, uh, who plays, um, Modesto Canaan is really just, just terrific. It's such a great showcase for him. So, 
So that 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 held up on second viewing. I completely agree. Like just just as with sort of the Judith Light episode, you know, it's just an amazing one-off, one episode performance that really sticks out as as memorable for the series as a whole. I agree with you too. Sort of watching back through a second time, A House by the Lake. Um, you know, that episode with the death of David Madsen really held up uh, the surreality of it, the poignancy of it really held up for me. And then this is still a great episode, but not as, I don't know, revelatory. You know, it's so, it's so revelatory to the character of Andrew the first time that, um, but it's not as, I would say, what, like artistic maybe right. as House by the Lake. And so the second time through, I'm like, okay, I already have this information. Some of the performances are great. But yeah, it lacks that sort of, oh, I'm learning so much mm-hmm. sort of reaction. Um, so let's, let's start off with this, with the Versace section of the episode, which is very quick and at the beginning, um, 1957, uh, uh, Calibria, Italy. And, here we see, you know, a young, I don't, because I only read Maureen Orr's book and not a lot about the biography of Gianni Versace, I don't know how accurate this is, but we, um, we see, you know, basically a young Versace, like wanting to be a designer from a very young age. We see encouragement from his mother, who was a dressmaker, who we heard about in another episode. Uh, we, you know, we see him called, you know, a pansy, uh, by <laughs> yeah. his, uh, by his coworkers, not the pervert, the pansy. No, by his, by his classmates, you <laughs> mean, not coworkers, classmates. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Classmates. Yeah. Yes, yes. By like small Italian boys, uh, in, in thick Italian accents. So, uh, all of that happens. And then we see, you know, his mom is sort of the platonic ideal of what, you know, maybe a young gay boy in the 50s who wants to design dresses would get, which is just like, a, you know, a lovely supportive mother who's like, you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to work very hard. Mm-hmm. And when his teacher rips up this design he draws of a dress, she's like, we make it for real. You know, we do this. Yeah. It's fine. So, it's a bit um, of a Prince Pasta commercial, but um, I didn't, I mean, it, you know, the, the Italianness of it was a like, I think. Uh, it's it's funny. It's kind of laid on a little thick, but that's fine. I mean, it it it, it works. Uh, yeah, but it is um, you know, it's meant to stand in strong contrast to what we learn about how Cunanan was brought up. Um, it's our only Versace in the episode. You know, there's no Penelope Cruz or Edgar Ramirez or any of that. It's just you know, this this origin story of Gianni Versace. It's very quick, and um, you know it. It does underline the damage that we see inflicted on Andrew throughout this episode, but it, it is so idealized that, um, I don't know, it, it, it kind of reads, I don't know, a little too simplistic of like, this is a good childhood. I mean, right. even though he was like bullied in school and stuff like that, it's just like the, the, the mother is just so unflinchingly, um, supportive and un, so, um, un, unconflicted about her son you know the the maybe somewhat challenging life her her son has decided you know yeah. to pursue as a as a designer i mean like so. i guess the question is like how doting is too doting how encouraging is too encouraging you know because clearly um andrew's father was instilled him with a lot of kind of toxic ideas that would later manifest in terrible ways uh whereas in this you know imagined version of versace's childhood he was encouraged just the right amount you know um Right. But one thing that I think that like this show maybe starts to do a little bit in in the writing in this episode 
um, that it's kind of been doing here and there throughout, which is like a thesis that I don't necessarily like agree with, is that like it, it's almost setting it up that like, you know, Versace's was a story where everything went right and Cunanan's is the same version of that story where everything went wrong. Um, yeah. And I don't know that the that that actually parallels exactly well enough to kind of support the point. But, um, you know, I think it is an interesting sort of rueful, sad little thing just to, you know, to think about the way people are raised and like if this thing had been different, if that had been different, like what could have changed, you know? And I think that in, in, in evoking that, it the, this opening is is strong. Yeah, and the, the, the stressing here from um, Johnny Versace's mother, uh, Francesca, is you could do anything you want to do, but you have to work for it. And that's sort of kind of, very much the opposite of... Or at least the toxic opposite that Andrew is taught, which is you can you can be anything you want because it is owed to you, yeah. not because you have to earn it. So, um, all right. Um, so we switch over to 1980 in San Diego, California, which we know is Andrew's hometown, and we see like the whole Canaan and clan, um, which includes um, Andrew's mother, um, Mary Ann, played by Joanna Adler, who we we praised last week. Andrew's father, Modesto, played by uh, John John Briones, who Richard mentioned earlier. Three older siblings who barely rate a mention, basically in the whole thing, and then a young Andrew, played by this great um, actor, Edward Holdener, great young kid. I think it's just really, really good casting because you can you can see the Filipino, the half Filipino heritage on this kid a, a bit more than you can see it on Darren Chris. Um, so like he looks a little bit more like his father than maybe Darren Chris would, but he also just like from the way he even holds his head, it's that opening shot where you see him and the way he's sort of holding his chin up. I was like, Oh, that's, I mean, that's young Andrew. Like that, that looks like that to me. So I just yeah. thought it was no, he's really cr- lucky. He's yeah. a great find, although he's not exactly, I mean, he apparently he won some sort of acting award at the slam dance film festival two years ago. So like, he's like already on his way. Um, not a nobody. Yeah, not no, nobody. but it's, okay. it's great casting and, and, um and he's good. And it's just like, there's something so, otherworldly about him you know his sort of yeah. poise his he's very like delicate and and, and it just it, it heightens the this the kind of tension of these early scenes yeah so we see you know the, the whole family's moving out of this sort of rundown neighborhood in in san diego everyone's working except for andrew and this will be a theme um where he's just sitting inside reading evelyn was and brideshead revisited like you do as a young child um Throughout the episode, we'll see him carrying around this teddy bear, which is something that Sebastian Flight from Brideshead Revisited does. And that is something that Andrew Kinnanen actually did as well. So that's a fun little um, Brideshead uh, detail. But, you know, we we sort of get this sense that – or not the sense. It's underlined heavily that Andrew is the favored son, the prince of the family. His siblings have to work and he doesn't. Um, and – yeah. So, what what did you think of of this introduction of of how how well it establishes a family dynamic in very little time? I think it does it really well. You know, I think that that's something we've said about this show a lot. Is the show is very good at establishing, um, you know, backstory and exposition, uh, efficiently. And I think we get that here. Um, and uh, you know, I think that because Briones and Holdener are such are so good in it that like we're immediately sucked in. Um, Joanna Adler is is gr- continues to be great. Um, you know, I think the the bride's head thing is interesting because um later in the episode um we see a poster for the 1981 uh TV miniseries with Jeremy Irons that was kind of a phenomenon in its day. Yeah. Um and that story which is all about someone 
glimpsing a life of wealth and privilege and it's kind of it's a gay story um you know to some extent and uh like it just has a lot of interesting sort of uh resonance with the Cunanan story as we've seen it these past eight episodes so um, I don't know if Cunanan was really a, a was a Brideshead Revisited fan or if that's just a clever trick of the show but um, you know it's an appreciated little detail I think the the teddy bear was like a was an affectation was like a Brideshead affectation it was, but okay. um, the uh, the the Brideshead poster and then later on he's got a Chariots of Fire poster in his room I was like Andrew Cunanan is kind of cool kid I would have I, mean, <laughs> I would have liked hanging out with this very cultured very damaged or just okay. an anglophile um, who liked you know handsome young british men but and, and like uh, white wearing white <laughs> right, i guess right. <laughs> yeah exactly so uh you know we see the Cunanans leave their their you know they're moving on up to a, a different neighborhood in san diego a, a much nicer house um and then we see that um we see modesto lead andrew up to the master bedroom um uh, while the rest of the family has to unload the truck. And uh, first of all, the camera here uh, lingers on the clasped hands of Modesto and Andrew as they go up the stairs. And that was my first indication in this episode that like something mm-hmm. is even more wrong here than all the other wrong things we're about to see. And th- this is something that actually Maureen Orr's book doesn't go to heavy on uh, any sort of implied sexual molestation uh, in Andrew's childhood. And so uh, it's something that, that I wasn't prepared for. I was prepared for all this other weirdness, like the master bedroom stuff, but uh, the, the molestation, um, which is uh, implied until it's overt, um, or I guess it's still implied, uh, you know, was something that kind of alarmed me what did you what did you think yeah i didn't pick up on it here i mean i'm i'm sort of thick sometimes in in terms of like picking up on those context clues but um uh yeah i mean i again having not read orth's book um which i think has been kind of an interesting perspective on the show you know you've read it i haven't no one an expert and a non-expert um i hope so anyway but um you know i don't know how 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 much it is in the book but like if that's just a complete infer or like inference or an invention of the show then i think we're entering into tricky territory uh you know in the same way that we have in the past with a couple other things so i don't i don't really know i mean it's an interesting plot element i guess to kind of further understand um the union and as as depicted in this series um but if it's if it's veering from real life or 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 if it's based in conjecture um it that might be a little i don't know irresponsible maybe yeah, I might want to revisit the those early Earth chapters, but I I just don't remember it as being an established thing. But she did talk to both Modesto Cunanan and and Mary Ann uh, Cunanan, uh, or and they are both pretty mentally unstable people as they are portrayed in the book and on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe maybe I'll ask Maureen what she thinks of this. Yeah. But um, but yeah, the um, the master bedroom thing is is. Is inter- it's crazy enough in its own right. Yeah, you know but I mean? it's like, but it's also interesting because you know, what was it? Two episodes ago, three episodes ago, yeah. we when Descent, when he's yeah. in, in the hotel with David, and so you're like, oh, he wasn't lying, you know, yeah. like because you think it's all bullshit, and I think that's something that's really sad about this episode is that you realize that like a lot of what we've seen of Andrew, you know, in the in our past, but the show's future, um, has actually been him. You know, because it, yeah. we think that it, everything is a lie, that everything that comes out of his mouth is just some sort of invention. And it turns out some of it isn't. Yeah. And so we see, you know, 
it's not just that Andrew's given the master bedroom in this grand new house. His father says creepy stuff to him, like, remember you're special. When you feel special, success will follow. That's like that entitlement that's been instilled in Andrew from, from, you know, infancy, basically. Um, and it's not just, it's weird enough that Andrew gets the master bedroom. But what's even weirder is like the house is big, but I guess not so big that the other three siblings, like they have to sleep three to a room. It's two to a bed and one in a mattress on the floor. And Andrew gets this massive master suite to himself. Um, and then what follows is actually, I maybe the episode's biggest misstep for me because it actually does it so well at the end, which is this weird American flag scene. You see Modesto Cunanan erecting an American flag sort of out in front of the house. Uh, and Andrew sort of sees his father do this through the window. And I think they salute each other. And it's sort of this whole, uh, this is the American dream sort of thing. The, the episode interacts with the American dream question very well uh, later um in in the Philippines scene, but here with the flag, it just feels like hitting me over the head a little bit. Does that Yeah, it's a little it's a it's you? a little on the nose. Um, you know, yeah. I think that, that this show uh has teased out um you know the Americanness of this American crime story in, in subtler ways, you know, elsewhere. Um but uh but you know, again, I think this episode is 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 um is so anchored by by Briones's performance that I don't mind him being in an extra scene here and there, you know. Several weeks ago, we talked about uh, this great article that Inku Kang wrote, I believe, for Slate about uh, Andrew's race, his Filipino heritage, and the way in which the show doesn't engage in it. And then we sort of promised at that in that episode that the show would eventually get to it, which I think it did, both in the um, well, it definitely did in the escort scene that we talked about last week, and then this episode is so much about um, Modesto Cunanan. Filipino identity, and then to a slightly lesser degree, but still there, Andrew Cunanan's uh, half Filipino identity, and um, I, you know, that is really brought home for the first time in this scene where we have these parallel experiences of Andrew trying to get into this really um, expensive and high toned private school called Bishops uh, in San Diego and uh, Modesto applying for a job at Mer- Merrill Lynch, and they're both faced with a like a wall of well-dressed white people, well-dressed young white boys at Bishops and well-dressed white men, Ivy Leakers at Merrill Lynch, and both sort of looking around uh, both through the lens of class and race of how, you know, they feel like they don't belong here and they have to work 10 times as hard to get their place there. For Andrew, it's less... Um, I don't know, corrupted than it is for Modesto because Modesto is like, I mean, he's a used car salesman through and through. And so he's just sort of, uh, you know, he's, he's fast talking his way into this Merrill Lynch position. Um, Andrew is bright. And so I think he does deserve a place at Bishop. So his, his pursuit here is feels less, um, uncomfortable to me, but it is still, uh, you know, this matter of, of trying to, find a role for yourself in a world where you're not immediately welcome. Yeah. And in this interview scene, um, well, first of all, they say, you know, someone like you, and then you're like, Oh, you're, we're cringing. They're like, you know, who, who, you know, like basically like had a a different kind of, didn't have a formal education or whatever. Um, that's what they mean. Not, you know, well, maybe they do implicitly mean uh, an Asian man, but, um, but we do see the, the, the power of Modesto, like how good he is, you know, that speech is pretty convincing or, or it, or it's a good sell, you know, 
Um, and so you see where Andrew got that. But you also kind of feel like, you know, that Andrew isn't quite as slick or something as his dad is. And, and I don't know if that's, you know, um, a choice that the show is making or if it's just, you know, the way I'm seeing it. But but um, I feel like Andrew's is always kind of a little bit shakier or I mean, not that Modesto's wasn't because it all, obviously all later falls apart. But like, I don't know. I just I just bought him in that scene. I, I agree. I think I think Modesto is always sold on his own lie. Yeah. And Andrew is always seems like uh, older Andrew. Younger Andrew is different because younger Andrew is just like very vulnerable, very afraid of making, you know, when he has that interview scene and he says, did I say the wrong thing? You know, like uh, yeah. it just seems the stakes are so high. He can't mess up. He can't not get into this school. There's so much pressure on him to be special. And um, but but to compare older Andrew's lies adult Andrew's lies with Modesto's lies. I think you're right that Modesto is just like all in on his own brand. And uh, it's, it's, it is, it's pretty impressive. And it's just, the performance is just so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has this, he has a speech where he says, my life is a tale told in dollars. Like, oh, that's great. Um, and then we see in this interview that Modesto quickly tells the Merrill Lynch people to call him Pete rather than Modesto, mm-hmm. uh, which is of course like a, a, a much whiter name to have. And so, the way in which the episode engages with race there is, you know, even before Modesto says a bunch of stuff about living in America at the end of the episode, we see this idea of him trying to pass in a way. He can't pass. He looks, you know, he he just looks Filipino, but like he's he's Pete. He's not Modesto. He's Pete. He's 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 one of you guys. He's a guy, you know. So, um yeah, yeah. and I think and, that it, you know, it, it I don't think that the show is necessarily exonerating um, him, but you do see like in in stories like this, you know, where people are uh, of color, um, marginalized people are trying to make it in America, um, and then cut corners or do you know do something illegal to get that. There is a sense where you're like, well, but like, isn't that kind of balancing it out? You know, it's it, is is it really a cheat if they're being cheated since they were born? You know, because of the color yeah. of their skin or whatever. So, so I mean, I think that 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 Modesto's slickness, his lies, and eventually his crimes, um, have some kind of there's a there's a slight moral balance to them because you know he's started so kind of far behind. Um, you know, a, a white man would have uh, in, 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 you know, 1980 San Diego. Yeah. And when he talks about like when he gives a speech to Merrill Lynch and he talks about how he bootstrapped, you know, I think they use the phrase bootstrap you into night school. He enrolled, you know, he, he enrolled in the army. Like he was born in, in the Philippines in a, I think a house you could buy with the money you have in your wallet is something he says. And, and, you know, he pulled himself up. That is, you know, allegedly the American dream. We'll get to more of that later, but um but yeah, you're right. He's starting so far behind that some of the early things that he has to do to make it is understandable. And then he takes like a step too far and you're like, okay. Um, and before we get to his actual legal crimes, we get to, well, okay, sorry. Before, before we go there, I do want to mention Andrew's interview here. You know, we hear him talking to the the school uh, admissions board, and he's they're asking what he envisions for his future. And he says, "A beautiful house overlooking the ocean, two Mercedes, uh, two dogs, three kids, and a good relationship with God." Which uh, is something that the show doesn't really go into. Maureen's book goes into a little bit more, which is his mother's uh, religious uh, leanings and and his upbringing in the church. And um, it's just something that that kind of 
comes in there that yeah. the show doesn't dive into. Yeah, I was surprised by that. It kind of it kind of jarred me because I just don't really feel like we've seen this show um aside from like Lee Miglin's basement, you know, chapel or whatever, yeah. really grappling with religion. Um and you know, obviously um he's half Italian, half Filipino. Those are both uh, pretty Catholic countries and or have, you know, big Catholic populations anyway and um you know, so I just thought it was it kind of felt out of nowhere but like um maybe I guess it has the context in the book. Well, the reason I think they might have included it here where uh, even without all that context is uh, this is like a word for word lift from Maureen's book because Maureen mentions it because uh, if you notice, you know, he talks about this and he doesn't mention like a wife. He mentions kids. Mm-hmm. He mentions a home. But he doesn't mention a wife. And so it's sort of like it, it seemed what Maureen extrapolated from that because she got that from like the bishops, bishops and missions people that she talked to. What she extrapolated was, you know, like even then. Andrew knew who he was. You know, and he, yeah, which, you know, is interesting yeah. and, and and that we've seen that, you know, carried through uh in other episodes. You know, that like we've talked about, like he that is one thing that he is pretty even though he kinda lies to Liz about it and her husband and like, you know, there 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 are some prevarications here and there, but like he means mo- remains mostly kind of steadfast about his queerness, you know. Um, which is interesting for someone who is otherwise so you know, malleable and, and shifty and, you know, chameleon, like, um, it's interesting that that's a constant and, you know, with the house by the overlooking the ocean, well, okay. That maybe, you know, explains some stuff we saw last week, we, you know, with the house in, in San Diego and, you know, so it, this episode does kind of put a lot of things in context that I think deepens, um, past episodes, which is an interesting um, thing for a, a show to do, but it makes sense when you're working backwards like this. Yeah, the 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 benefit of the reversal. We also get him, you know, he mentions specifically Mercedes and mm-hmm. we, you know, in descent he was obsessed with getting a Mercedes. So, um then we get this like of all the stuff that Modesto does and he does crazy evil stuff in this episode. This is I think one of the crazier, which is this like weird feint where he has like this sad pepperoni pizza on the table. And he, you know, Marianne and Andrew come in and he lies and says he didn't get the job. And Marianne is like sympathetic and supportive. And then he's like, just kidding. I got the job on like whip, like unveils some champagne and lobster and then is insanely cruel to Marianne because he's like, but you didn't think I got the job because you have no faith in me. And um, it's just a degree of mental manipulation and mental um abuse cruelty i mean it's just it's so cruel and like he does crazier things like with the car and and obviously the sexual molestation is is i would say the biggest crime of the episode but this like for no reason yeah this manipulation is just because it's a happy moment right or it should be and and it really well establishes a, a dynamic between uh, Marianne and Modesto, you know, just it, with, you know, just a couple lines. I mean, it establishes that Marianne has had um, a history of being, you know, institutionalized. Um, it shows that Modesto is manipulative to a darker degree than we thought. We maybe he just we thought we was, he was kind of a huckster. But now it's like, oh, no, there's something actually, you know, sad, almost sadistic about about this guy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a dark. I mean, it's a really grim, sad scene. Um, especially the way that Joanna Adler, you know, she does it. She's done this in several scenes, um, in several episodes where something really sad or bad will happen. And then she kind of immediately has to pick herself up and be kind of bright again, like with the ice cream on the floor or, or now this, you know, situation. 
Um, and it's just like it's a heartbreaking performance. Yeah, we see we see Modesto serve and himself and Andrew Lobster, and like Marion has to bring other plates over to the table for the other children right. and herself to be like, "Hey, also we're in your family, do we, and we support you." Do we know anything about them, like, and where they are, and have they spoken to anybody about any of this? They're they're in Maureen's book. I, uh, you know, they live. At least some of them live nearby Marianne or did, you know, at the point that Maureen talked to her. Um, you know, I think one of them derisively calls Andrew like Prince Andrew mm-hmm. in, in the, in the thing there. I think it was just because they were like older and resentful of Andrew's position. They are not heavily present in in the book at all they went to a different school you know they didn't get to go to the private school that andrew went to so it's almost like they're from a different family altogether you know right um but yeah i mean the show doesn't really engage with them but i think that's that's almost correct because they were such a non-entity he was so uh can all consumingly uh, adored by his well adored as not the accurate word, but, um, you know, obsessed over by his parents that the other children are sort of just not even in the picture. Um, we see Modesto and Andrew reading The Art of Conversation, which is, you know, presumably where Andrew gets a lot of his manners that he knows. And Modesto is saying, you know, like, it's not enough to be smart. You need to fit in. You need to know all these, like, crazy things, like how to lay a brunch buffet or, like, whatever it is. All these weird, like, etiquette things that Andrew winds up knowing. Um, we have a scene where... Andrew gets into Bishop. I really loved this scene, actually. We see Andrew, young Andrew reading his letter of admission. He looks horrified. Then the shot, the shot is very artfully done because then the camera like sort of pans down, pans back up, and Marianne's sort of like over his shoulder, and she's like, You got in, why are you upset? And he oh, he hugs her so tightly, and he's just like does not seem excited at all. It's like, sure, there's a relief because there was just so much pressure if he didn't get in, but um, it's not a really jubilant moment for him. And then Modesto comes in and is a crazy person about it and kisses his son's feet over it. And yeah. I just, I really love the whole progression of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a really, the way that this episode immediately I mean, we all know that we know that this is going to be be dark eventually because we've been watching the show. But um, the way that this episode turns each little happy moment into something unsettling or sad or whatever, yeah. you know, it's just like and it just gives you a sense of like maybe what being in that house might have felt like day to day. Like, obviously, not every day I had a big moment like this, but maybe there was always that underlying fear that anything good could it could really quickly, um, you know, turn into something bad. And um you know living with that as a child day after day after day i mean that's that's pretty psychologically taxing and um and obviously andrew is such a receptive kid and who's listening and paying attention um and absorbing this stuff i mean i think that's why we see him later as a teen like he's better off talking to grown-ups is because that's those were the two biggest uh social influences over him i mean they are for most people with two parents at home but like but like he really is just in deep with these two these two adults and um it's warping yeah warping is the word um we see Modesto start work i really i mean this is a this is a quick and very efficient scene to show that like um you know what he he was selling a false bill of goods he's not maybe necessarily inherently gifted at being a stockbroker uh we see like 
John Tabrioni's uh, performance here is so good because there is that bravura, that confidence, like you see that, but also just like right underneath this, what have I gotten myself into? Like he just, he did, he bootstrapped his way all the way to Merrill Lynch. And then when he got there, he was like, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we see him like a customer hangs up on him and he continues to do his pitch. That's a, that's a really good scene. Yeah. And, and Bomer um, does something great there where he, um, you know, no, you could you could just hear the person hang up and that would be it. But they include the the, the sound effects, you know, for, for the busy tone, you know. So yeah. it's that 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 yeah. beep, beep, beep thing. So it just kind of heightens the like, ugh, like, I don't know, sort of um, tension and sort of grotesqueness of it. It's a really neat little detail. Then we get another fulfillment, uh, exactly what you're talking about in terms of the master bedroom. We get this other fulfillment of something that Andrew said to uh, David Madsen, which is that he had a car before he could drive, which is true, uh, according to Maureen's book, that his father bought him a car. Uh, this is another really, I mean, once again, I, I mean, the more we talk about it, the more I'm thinking there is a little bit more artistry to this episode than I was giving it credit because we've got this great scene where Modesto brings Andrew out to his car. Andrew's a child. It's crazy. Sits in the car. And Marianne is like, uh, this is insane. You've got children who can drive. Why are you buying a car for a child who can't drive? And they're out of focus in the background. Yeah. Andrew's just in the car and they're out of focus in the background as she's making reasonable points and Modesto is physically assaulting her. Yeah. And um, she... She says this great thing here that I that I kind of take as um, a thesis statement for the show where Modesto argues that Andrew deserves the car because he got into bishops. And she says that's a beginning, not an end. Like that's the beginning of all the work that he has to do to continue to succeed, just getting the Getting the job at Merrill Lynch, getting into bishops, uh, getting the house in La Jolla, getting like whatever it is, is not it. You have to then keep working, which is, you know, what Versace's mother said at the beginning of the episode. You have to work and work. And, and that's the lesson that Andrew missed because of Modesto. Yeah. It's like, sh you know, sh shine your way into this thing. I mean, the, it's a tragedy of, of ascent when it's sort of like, Andrew got himself the house over the ocean and then he just, he, th that, um, that win was it for him and he didn't do any of the work to maintain it. I mean, whatever yeah. you want to consider that work to be, you know, so. Uh, um a couple things about this. One is that is the timeline supposed to be that we see Modesto have this, you know, failure at work. And is he supposed to then leave work impulsively by his son a car to kind of like change the narrative? Or is this just too, do you think these are two discrete separate things? Like, um, because it, because it, it, uh, it, if it's the, if it's the latter, then like, I, I'm a little bit confused about why, like what the impetus for the car was, you know? Well, I think it's, it's, I, I like that as, uh, it's the same day yeah. as his failure at work. He went to go like feel the big man. He went and bought a car for his child. Um, I, I didn't. I think the only clue we might have there is like what he's wearing. Oh, duh, right. So I'm a dork. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> yeah, of course. We could look back yeah. and like see if he's got the same tie on or something like that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't if know. If it is um, the former, I think that's a, that's an interesting sort of psychological profile piece, you know, because it's like, yeah. And, and, you know, when, if something is, you know, to mask a failure, you have to, you know, spend more. And I, and look what Andrew did later with David, you know, set, you know, knowing that like he was kind of losing him, but, you know, bringing him to this hotel in LA anyway. And because yeah. that was going to, you know, fix it or something. It's, it's, uh, the psychological through lines are, are, are there. 
we get we get some backstory from Modesto, the fact that um, you know, the the institutionalized um the period in, in Marianne's life took place right after Andrew was born. And this is true. Maureen talks about this. So so um Modesto did take care of infant Andrew and that Maureen zeroes in on it as as a time a way in which um, Modesto felt sort of unusually bonded to Andrew. Um, he took care of him as an infant because Marianne was unable to versus the other three children. That was not the case. And, uh, so that, that could have been the beginning of his, I mean, there's no other reason necessarily why he would zero in on Andrew as, as the, as the special object of his affection. Um, but we see we see this work on Andrew because um, Marion comes up to the car and, and in another really nice shot, you know, more credit to Matt Bomer. Um, Andrew rolls up the window and you see Marianne reflected in the window uh, and yeah. he's just closed, closed off. To her. Yeah, poor Marianne. <laughs> what a, which is too because that, that scene starts with her doing homework with him and it's very wholesome. And she's just like saying sweet things like punctuation is what the musicality of or something like it's just, you know, if left to marry, you know, yes, she is mentally unstable, but could maybe have been like a wholesome influence on her very bright child. So, and and, you know, especially compared to just earlier when he got into bishops, we saw him cling to her uh, for comfort and support. And so for him to shut her out there is just uh, heartbreaking. Um, And then we get the, the, you know, arguably I would say the most upsetting scene in the episode where we have Andrew in bed talking to his father and uh, you know, his father talks about, how when he took care of him as an infant, he burned his foot and he didn't make a sound. And, yeah. you know, he says, don't make a sound and leans over and switch off the light. And you realize something or, creepy. I mean, I guess they've established it earlier in the episode. But you're like, oh, maybe he wanted him in the master bedroom because then he would have an excuse to go in there at night because that's where the closet is. You know, so 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 we, ha- we, we get the sense of this ritual that the father is in there changing in front of his son every night. You know, and maybe that's the time, you know, that maybe that was deliberate. I, I don't know. But like, yeah. um, you see like an interesting sort of mechanism there, I think. Um, and that is the last we get of um, young Andrew. Yeah. So like one last. Goodbye, Edward uh, Holdener. Yeah. One last shout out to Edward because he is so good in that. Uh, and then we flip forward to 1987. Uh, we've got uh, a hazy shade of winter by the Bengals playing. Someone, someone reached out to me on Twitter and asked why there's so much eighties music in a show that takes place largely in the nineties. And um, actually something that the producers told me was that uh, they picked a lot of eighties music because it was what Andrew was listening to as a teenager. And they wanted the show to be sort of like the soundtrack of Andrew's, I don't know, personal mixtape in his head sure so that's why you get a lot of 80s music even in the 90s because that was like andrew's teenage years um like if you were to do the joanna robinson story you'd have a lot of 90s music no matter when it takes place that's just true so um i wrote here in my notes blaine warbler which is um, a reference to the character darren plays on on glee obviously andrew cannon is not uh blaine one of the prep school uh like blaine and his like prep school warbler phase um but he's got the school uniform he's he's sort of zipping into school in his in that car that his father bought him um and and sort of kind of looking like king of of the campus even though he was not um necessarily and but what is true is something that marine you know marine talked to a lot of andrew's classmates about this is um that andrew would sort of play up 
um, not even necessarily play up the gayness, just play up like an antic disposition in order to get attention that this was very much how Andrew behaved. And so we see yeah. him standing in line for a class photo. And then we see what, you know, uh, when you were talking to Darren and Chris last week, you mentioned that um, there are very few photos of Andrew Kanan and sort of floating out around there. But one of them that exists, and it's one of the most bizarre images you'll see is Andrew in his school uniform with his shirt open, which, yeah. uh, but his, tie still tied um that's in the yearbook and here we see you know darren chris reenacting that uh for a school photo and it's um i don't know it's just sort of like okay here's here's uh here's a different phase yeah of, um, of andrew's damage in in a in a way i don't think their psychology is the same really at all but like um in, in some ways it is i guess but um, it reminds me of, you know, when Jeffrey Dahmer was a teenager um, and he was very socially outcast at school, um, he, for a spell, would like, that he, he became friends with this group of boys uh, and he would do these things that I think he would call them his like freakouts or something like that. And he would like spaz out or whatever in school just to kind of get attention and get a rise out of people and, and they would laugh. And a lot of times that was his only sort of social connection to people. And actually there's a movie about it that came out um last year um it's actually pretty good called my friend Dahmer. anyway um so just andrew kind of performing this way where he's like you know what i know i'm not going to get the actual like friendliness and you know affection from these kids so well okay screw it i might as well just like act out as much as possible because at least then i'm being noticed right um and you that's when i think we we, we, we kind of near immediately see in these high school scenes um why Andrew had so much trouble going forward, actually forming a yeah. connection with people because he just didn't know how. Yeah. Any attention is good attention. Right. And, um, even somewhat negative attention and, and he's always performing. That's something you also, that I really liked that you talked to Darren Chris about in terms of like Andrew, maybe not in this young boy version that we saw of him. Um, he hadn't gotten there yet, but it, it, from a teenager is always inauthentic. And so how do you form a connection if you're your inauthentic self? For more on this, let's go to a little snippet from Richard's discussion with Darren on this very subject from last week. I think a really interesting thing about the way that the show is structured is that we do walk in with all these kind of preconceived notions. Anyway, those of us who are familiar with it, and then it, walks us back and and further and further back into Andrew's life where we get to a point where we're now within these later episodes seeing stuff that was real I mean you know obviously there are dramatic embellishments here and there but sure. like this is where he was from this is who you know his parents were and we get to this place after these initial episodes of seeing him be this horrible murderer where he becomes a human being and uh, I'm curious like where do you fall on because something we've talked about on the podcast is like in these later episodes, I feel sim deep sympathy for him, you know, and I kind of almost I care about him in a way that I did in the beginning of the show. Where do you fall on that? I mean, how how do you are you ever playing for sympathy or are you just doing that playing emotion thing? I mean, yeah, I think it's not up to me whether people sympathize or empathize. Yeah. Uh, it's out of my hands. Um, and nor am I asking anybody to. That's a dangerous thing, because uh, I think the nice thing about going backwards is that we we have already established that what he's done is deplorable and, and, and unforgivable. So, you know, as an actor speaking about the show after the fact, I'm very delicate about where one's sympathy should or may lie. Um, 
But to me, that's very heartening to hear you say that because um, such is the hope and the goal. Um, but again, I don't, it's not required. Um, you, you're, when people always say, you know, what is it, what's it like getting inside a killer's head? And I always say, well, that's not really <laughs> what, that's, that's too simple. You're not getting into the head of a killer. Just like if somebody was playing you, it, I wouldn't ask, what's it like getting inside the mind of somebody that works at Vanity Fair? And I'm like, well, <laughs> Richard isn't like he, he's had lived a whole, led a whole life of varying degrees of, of professional things and personal things. It's, he's not just a guy at Vanity Fair. Like killed lots of people. Killed I lots mean, of people. I mean, yeah. I mean, but it sounds crazy because obviously, you know, if you've done, that's like the pinnacle of something so extreme um, that you can't help but have that upstage everything else in one's life but the human life is a very complex array of emotions and thought processes and, and it's and, and so i'm not thinking about that i'm thinking about much of like the the larger depths of of the human scale so um which is to say that i think mo if i had to be very vague about it or very broad uh i think most of andrew is played through a significant amount of pain and a significant amount of hurt and once you lock into that, you know, it, it's sympathy comes naturally. Well, actually, it's a very heartening idea that people sympathize with those that are hurt. You know, it's a it's a comforting yeah. uh, um, truth, I guess. Yeah, it's an instinct. Uh, it's, it's an instinct of, yeah. of us not feeling comfortable with someone's discomfort. Um, so uh, I'm not specifically saying, oh, boy, let's have people feel for him there's those kind of cringe moments where he's at the party where you see this kid that's trying too hard and, and has this very misguided sense of trying to do something. He's trying to do good by people or by himself, but in a very misguided way. And when you go, Oh, it's because you do care about it. Yeah. But that wasn't my goal. My goal is like, this kid's worried. He's trying to make this work and you just play the scene. And then, and then from there, hopefully the, the colors that the audience, uh, should feel happen naturally, yeah. but it's not as calculated as that. So um, we see that Modesto has come way down in the world. He has been, you know, we assume fired from Merrill Lynch because he didn't know what he was doing and he's working at a tiny brokerage company and bezzling money from the elderly. So that's great. And then we get Marianne teasing Andrew about a special girl and Andrew is like not out to his mom, but he's sort of kind of hedging or like trying to get there. You know what I mean? He's mm -hmm. like, well, what if I told you that she's older? And Marianne is like, of course, nice and supportive of that because Andrew can do no wrong. Um, and then we find out that Andrew is, and this is true that, you know, teenage Andrew Kanana did uh, go around with older dudes. He's, he's got an older married man uh, who he's seeing and tries to take to a high school party. And that does not go well. Um, yeah. And, and it's like, you know, it, it, it's a it's a recurring thing with him where it's just like Andrew why would that why would that work like why would that be okay why would that make any sense you know um he's just so frustratingly stubborn about the world you know and about how people yeah. react to him and to certain things and um you know I, I mean it's a reflection I guess of the way that the father character is you know rendered and that like he refuses to kind of see reality or acknowledge it but um yeah that the, the the older dates kind of like disgusted like what the hell are you talking about it was just another moment of reality kind of trying to get through to him and it has no impact no because andrew in this like incredible red leather pleather vinyl um jumpsuit very eddie murphy stand-up kind of yeah, yeah. 
Yes, raw. Yeah. Uh, walks into this party and Devo is playing Whippet and he just, uh, tackles the dance floor dancing, um, over the top. And, uh, Darren Chris, this is me. I mean, Darren does so many things throughout this entire show. Um, this moment, this, this silent moment where Andrew is like performing, obviously for the room, knows he's putting people off, but wants to keep doing it. He's like angry, but like doing a dance that should be joyful and celebratory, but he's like angry and defiant. And, um, there's just so much roiling around, uh, in teenage Andrew here that I, I really responded to. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the seeing the, um, that nice kid from from the first step way back, you know, in the pilot episode, uh, and he's like, "I'm going to ask him out because he's kind." Of, he, I, and, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, "Is it just because he's like the only d- other demonstrably gay boy in their class or in their school, or is there a, is is he is sort of in awe of Andrew's kind of flamboyance?" And I think that we do see that where he's kind of watching Andrew dance, and there is a sort of sense of like, "Wow, like look at him." Um, which, you know, is yet another sort of sad road not taken. And it's like there maybe there were little opportunities that Andrew had to live a more, you know, normal life and, 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 and actually find fulfillment and happiness throughout his life. Um, but he just kept resisting it because it wasn't enough or whatever. And I think that that, that that kid in that first episode says something like, I know I'm not remarkable or something. And, and you know, so it's sad to see that little origin story here. I know. And it's, it's so sad because, you know, okay. So Andrew is putting on the show for attention. Um, but like the, the healthy attention and affection that he could, like, it's that show is what, uh, uh, you know, my interpretation is, is what puts off this nice young man from asking Andrew out. Uh, yeah. because it's all just like too much and too intimidating, you know? And so like it, it's, it, it's another case of Andrew reaching out so hard for connection and, uh, in doing so blocking the very connection that he could have. Um, he does make one connection here though, because this is the meet cue between Liz Cote, um, played by Annalie Ashford and, um, and Andrew. And, and you mentioned, um, before we were talking Richard and other, another episode that like, uh, theirs is maybe one of the only time in Andrew's life where he does seem to have like a natural connection with someone. Yeah. He is still performing for her. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting thing because I, you know, in my little sort of thesis about how he was alienated from everyone, I was like, Oh, but there is Liz. Like, what about her? Um, and in, you know, in our, in my conversation with Darren, Chris, he said something really interesting about how, and he said, uh, he sounded maybe a little bit negative about it. Let's hear from from you and Darren on on Liz Cote and and what he thought Liz and Andrew's actual relationship was like. Maureen kind of explained his arrangement with um, Lizzie uh, when he when he moved in with her in Berkeley. Um, I don't know if you said this, but I just remember thinking of it. He, he was sort of this like feudal system, like he was this indentured servant, like indentured gay clown servant. Like mm-hmm. he he offered her like friendship and amusement and um sort of you know like non-sexual intimacy non-sexual like lizzie bless her i've never met her i know she's still out there in our show you know it helps that she's played by our beloved annalee ashford but sort of classic hag you Mm -hmm. know just and she's got she's got her gay and she's um um and it's sort of that classic relationship and uh this very symbiotic fun loving thing and so in those moments you go okay well how much is not me, but how much is Andrew playing up this sort of caricature, this role 
to um, to be to fit into this um, mold that he's made for himself in this sort of situation with her, and then how much do we delete, 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 delete Apple Z for when he's in other situations with other people? And- Anna Lee Ashford, I think, is bringing something that seems like a little bit more um, emotionally pure to her characterization of Liz Cote, whether that's a mis- misinterpretation of who Liz Cote was. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, I think I think if that's if that was the intention, mm-hmm. that's not the performance yeah. that Anna Lee Ashford is giving. Um, she mentions that she has like, you know, this is a weird thing, but Liz Cote, I think got married at like 19 or something like that. So she's, she's married. She has a house. She was homeschooled. So like she does, and she lives in Berkeley. So she does cling to, to Andrew as sort of this like really fun, youthful, cultured, like person to, to have in her life. Um, you know, whether that's as mercenary as, um, Darren Chris portrays that, I'm unsure, but, but it is interesting. Um, then we see the news, the news tightening around Modesto, uh, where the feds are like tracking his, you know, illegal behavior. His bosses won't protect him. He starts shredding stuff. Um, he books a flight, uh, the feds roll up and he runs out the back. This is another question I had about race. Cause the only, you know, like if we talk about this episode being the episode that this show, uh, you know, engages in race, there are only, there are two other Asian characters in this episode. Mm-hmm. There's the guy at the pharmacy who we'll meet at the end. And then there's the secretary who is like constantly looking out for Modesto, even though he doesn't deserve that at all. And like one implication might be that they're like having an affair possibly, but they're also, you know, like everyone else in that office is white. Um, And, you know, as we saw at Merrill Lynch, like he was the only non-white person at Merrill Lynch. So I, I was wondering if they were trying to establish some sort of like, um, you know, affinity of like, we're the only Asian people here. So I'm going to slightly look out for you. Kind of. I mean, yeah, I think that that, I think that's kind of how I read it. You know, and I think that the way that that those little moments, but that 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 Bomer, that the show is careful to make those moments, you know, like it, they're not yeah. an accident. And um, I think that the way that they kind of tie together with the scene at the very end with the pharmacist, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, it does show you this kind of a glimpse, a very brief glimpse into um, a kind of. I don't know, like like kind of side society, a sort of, you know, like um, a, a, a community uh, that maybe is not necessarily um, visible all the time, you know, the, the, a connection, a social connection, but like it's there. It's another example of a community that sort of seems constantly eager to embrace the Cunanans that the Cunanans are sort of rejecting. I mean, we don't know much about this relationship between Modesto and, and this secretary in, in his office, but, um, you know, if we, if we want to draw a line between her and the pharmacist that we meet again, these are people who are looking out for the Cunanans and that the Cunanans, you know, don't necessarily treat very well. Because uh, we've, we've met that pharmacist in another episode. So, like, it's right. not, he's, he's not a new character. But, um, you know, like, the, the Cunanan family was striving to fit into this upper echelon of white, rich San Diego society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a sense rejecting this other community that maybe had something um some more wholesome connections to yeah and in so doing uh you know in, in kind of uh, you know eschewing um or, or aspiring to that um you know modesto sort of makes this secretary complicit in helping get away right uh and then 
you know, Andrew has this conversation with the pharmacist at the end of the episode and the pharmacist is like, oh, my, you know, my family's from Manila too. And like is offering this point of connection and is being, you know, kind about it. And Andrew just sort of like coolly rejects it. And it's, um, right. it's yet another example of someone trying, like you said, some someone trying to make a connection with him and him just rejecting it because it's not, you know, some ideal that we see in this episode has been really just, you know, ground into him by his father. And self and the self hatred too. Yeah. Like I don't want this connection because it's like it's something about myself that I want to push down or ignore. Um, and uh, we see that Andrew won most likely to be remembered in his yearbook. His yearbook quote is "Apermal le deluge." Uh, is that all true? Which is, did he did he really win that? Yeah, yeah, which is technically, yeah, which is technically, yes, he did win that superlative uh, ominously enough. And um, that quote, which technically means after me comes the flood, like that's what that phrase means, but loosely defined here in the episode is after me destruction, which, uh, you know, neatly ties into creator destroyer, the name of this episode, and also the theme of um the whole the whole series uh andrew the destroyer gianni versace the creator um and then we see modesto abandoning his family he's got a he's got a it's the i don't know goodfellas <laughs> um wolf of wall street moment um yeah it's like keep modesto his go yeah. bag of money and passport. yeah, passports yeah. yeah he's got his like his his floor safe uh, he takes the car that he gave Andrew and, and like, sh- you know, physically shoves Marianne into a, a yeah. dresser and, and his parting words to Andrew are, don't believe anything they say. Like even, even now, <laughs> even now as he's fleeing the country and the feds are Still here, it up. he's like maintaining the lie, trying to maintain the lie to his son. And him, him pushing Marianne down is paralleled in this episode, in the episode where, um, Andrew leaves his mom. Um, yeah. and she's kind of trying to get him to stop, which is just like, so there's this cycle of abuse happening. Um, and I, I have to say though, um, being a lying penny stockbroker, you know, crook keeps you in good shape because he is just hopping over those walls. Oh, yeah. I was impressed. <laughs> it's like parkour practically. Um, yeah. Do we, I, I feel like, I don't think we ever see him work out, but I feel like Modesto is the kind of guy who has like a like, wet, wait set in his garage. Totally. He like, yeah. Obsessively works out. Um, but yeah, so, so, uh, you know, he's left them completely destitute. This is true that, uh, Modesto Kananen abandoned his family, left them completely destitute, fled to, to the Philippines. Um, and, you know, Andrew is still convinced that there's some sort of um, secret plan and that his father has millions stocked away and his mom's like, don't go. He's a monster. He's dangerous. Like, can't you finally see him for who he is? And Andrew still can't. That's to come. Um, and Andrew leaves the country to go to the Philippines. Um, and I love what happens here. I don't know uh, what your thoughts are on this whole Philippines theme, but... Um, this, this section of the show where Andrew goes to the Philippines, which is like, you know, very literal uh, going him very literally engaging with the Filipino side of him. Yeah. Um, it's sweaty. Everyone is drenched in sweat. This whole this whole sequence. He meets a, an uncle of his that he's never, you know, met before who's like, uh, is this your first time home? And Andrew like practically flinches. When he calls the Philippines home, he sees that the house is all run down in the Philippines. Um, this is really his reckoning with who his father is. And his father's still lying to him mm-hmm. and saying there are millions of dollars out of reach. Um, Did this really happen? Did he really go? 
Do we know? Did Andrew go to the Philippines? I don't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't recall. Okay. Um. Because like I, I, because I, I really feel like to, 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 like if it happened, yes, well done. If it didn't, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. You know, th- that's the funny thing about it. It's like, it's like in the version of this being an invention of the show, um, it feels a little on the nose to me a bit. Although it's a really well done sequence. Um. Well, to me, I mean, though the show is is treating it as very much like a reality. Yeah. To me, it lands the same way that that because uh, whether or not Andrew went to the Philippines after his father, which, like, honestly, I, I don't recall. Um, we don't know anything of what happened when he was there. So, right. Like, it's all, so it's all invented. Yeah. Is all invented, and so then it strikes me as similar to that opera scene at the beginning with Versace and and not not the. Uh, not that maybe two on the nose, one from the descent where Versace is is tailoring him, but like a different kind of fantasy sequence where the other person is a real person. You know what I mean? And so um we have you know, Modesto turning on it, you know, when just like Andrew does when he's called out on his lies, Modesto turns on him, turns all his vitriol on him, um, you know, calls out his gayness, uh and and basically dares him to kill him and yeah you're right i mean it's a little over the top but it's uh it it does draw a line to you know he says you're not man enough to kill me and and so and and andrew doesn't and you know so then we could maybe see that reverberating in andrew's like drug-addled head later when confronted with like jeff trail he's like i'm man enough to kill this person or something like that Mm -hmm. um the the moment where he's sort of calling his father out and and like angrily chopping fruit i mean that might be just like a a really like sort of cheesy convenient way to get a knife in his hand but there was just something about the way like darren chris punctuated each angry word with a chop that really like worked for me as well yeah um like and 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 this this bit where modesto is calling him you know you sissy kid and so so you know no one in 1950s italy ever said gay no one here is saying gay, but it's always, you know, there's always the implication of, um, you know, it, it's a special kind of, not that, not that, not that they are, they're not, they're, there's causality there, but like for someone who has been molesting his child, that's the implication to then, I don't know, reference his sexuality in this way. It's just like, it, it's like, there's an, it adds this like really much darker layer i mean it's the whole thing is dark but like it just complicates it in this very like fraught way um that i, I know we're back in that pizza scene where it's just, yeah, we're just like, like it's just modesto like inside someone's head being like exploiting their their deepest vulnerability yeah. which i imagine like marianne's fear around her own mental health and andrew's engagement with his sexuality yeah. you know and um we have andrew like clutching the knife to the point where he's bleeding and because uh, he's clutching the blade and, you know, he says, with determination, I'll never be like you, which is a resolution that lasts, I don't know, exactly one scene. Because in the very next scene when he's applying for a job at the pharmacy, and as we mentioned before, this pharmacist is trying to make a connection. Oh, your last name's Cunanan. Oh, you're, you must be Filipino. I'm Filipino, you know, like, do we know, do our families know each other, blah, blah, blah. And then Andrew's like, yes, you know, and this is where the pineapple plantation lie. We see it for the first time. And it's, you know, it's Andrew actively rejecting that Asian identity um, and that connection and turning into the Andrew that we recognize. So, And yet he continues to lie about the father. 
you know, like he continues to reference him. It's not like we've seen him, you know, when he's older being like, oh, my father died or this or that. No, he like he still, you know, he still places him in the Philippines at Merrill Lynch or running, you know, plantations or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So while he rejects the actual man, he does not reject his fantasy or the idea of it. Right. He he holds on to the like idealized version of Modesto. The version of Modesto that Modesto wants the world to see is something that Andrew carries on. So that is this episode. And, and throughout, I would say, I don't think there's ever one moment in this episode where I was not on Andrew's side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe that pharmacy scene. Because I'm like, oh, buddy. Or, you know, maybe that party scene where I'm like, stop dancing and and let this nice boy ask you out or something like that. But no, none of it's like I'm mad at Andrew for that. I'm just like, no, it's pity. I I'm I'm sympathetic yeah. and um and that is as we promised, uh, you know, in early episodes of this podcast, like one of the uh, great tricks or or you know genius maybe of this season is like you start out hating Andrew so much you hate him for so long and then you get this episode and you're like oh my god though where he came from yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the episode is know, so chock full of things. I mean, like, think about how much happens in this episode. Um, but by the end of it, you're kind of exhausted, but, you're, but you but you feel like you know so much more and you understand more. And again, you know, we don't know certain actual details or whatever. But in the show's version of Andrew, I think is so clarified here. Um, and um yeah, and it puts you in a it puts you in a weird place because you're like, I every I I I know what's coming. I've seen it already. Um, and yet um there here's the person you know and um and it's it's just it's sad it's sad. it's really sad and that's a much more complicated complicated um progression than if you know if the story were told linear, linearly we could start with an andrew that we sympathize with and then slowly feel like regret and and pain as he gets away from someone we can root for to just this this monster that we're repulsed by you know mm-hmm. and um you know that that's a story that we've seen i don't know like walter white or whatever you know um it may be to make you hate someone and then care about them is um i don't think that's why the story is told in reverse um i think that has to do with front loading versace and the story but um i think it is just a a brilliant and unusual way in which to digest this this story and um i i mean then we've talked about this a couple times. Then we rewatched the season, like knowing where Andrew came from. And, um, and then that in and of itself is its own experience that I really doubt many people will repeat, uh, cause it's a hard sit. But, uh, you know, that's something that you and I have done is sort of like then rewatch these episodes with that in mind, with, with this origin story, with this young, this young, vulnerable Andrew in mind. And, um, I don't know. It's been, it's been a crazy journey, Richard. It has, yeah, yeah, and now we're entering territory we don't know. We're, we're, we're this is we're we're going to get the episode, uh, the last episode, uh, fresh, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, I think as a way to, you know, cease the show's backward progression, we're 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 assuming that the the, the last episode is his final days. Um, this is quite an episode to to kind of cap off that narrative experiment, and and it's a successful one. To close out the episode, we'll hear from director Matt Bomer, who most people know from his acting roles on the USA show White Collar, 
the movies Magic Mike, Magic Mike XXL, some Ryan Murphy projects like The Normal Heart and American Horror Story. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But here he is trying his hand at directing and talking to Richard about how that all went down. Well, I'm on the line now with Matt Bomer, the director of this episode, Creator Destroyer. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is pretty exciting. I, I was looking on IMDb. I don't know how, how much I should trust it, but this is your first directing credit, right? That's correct. Yeah. I'd, I'd been offered some directing jobs in the past, but it was always on projects that I was an actor in as well. Oh, I see. And I wanted my first directing experience to be more objective and, and uh, you know, comprise everything that I could be present for and in the room for instead of, you know, trying to rush it in between takes and, and lean on my crew to, to do some of my work for me. But this had been an ambition directing for, for a while now? Yeah, it's something I've wanted to do for a while. And, and Ryan uh, Murphy, the, the creator of the show, had, you know, we'd worked together many times in the past and he knew that I always came with an exorbitant and um, disproportionate amount of homework and, and reams of binders and research and, and text work when we were working as an actor. And he said, you should direct. And um, I said, I'd love to. Didn't think much more of it. And he called me in December and said, I want you to direct. And I said, okay. And I, I thought maybe it'd be American Horror Story or one of his other shows. And he said, I want you to direct an episode of Versace. And I promptly passed out. <laughs> and uh, when I came to, I said yes and um, began doing my research right away. It was a, it was a four-month-long process for me. Um, I read over 3,000 pages of books. I shadowed two of the other directors. Um, I took an, an, an intensive at the DGA. Uh, I really wanted to do all the groundwork because I was there on set watching this unbelievable work transpire and I wanted to be able to meet these artists on a level when I came to set myself. So this episode in particular is the one that Ryan wanted you to do or did you guys have a a conversation about which episode would be the best fit? No, it was a great mystery actually and there there was a time when it was going to be the episode that aired this week Um, and then uh, thankfully this is the one I got. It was was the perfect first episode to get because it's very 
Sidney Lumet-esque. There aren't a lot of bells and whistles to it. It's really psychological about the story um, uh, in a very simplified way. Yeah. What What did you find in your research? What 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 sort of surprised you? Or what, was there something that you read that you were like, "Oh, that's that's the key. That's that's the in into this into this episode." Well, I think you do all the research on the family that you can. I was also learning, you know, studying extensively how to be a director and meeting with director friends of mine um, who were kind enough to kind of walk me through the process and some tips. And um, but then you get the episode you get. So obviously, I read the Maureen Orth novel and then. That was a great deal of information, and then I t- took the script, which is uh, the ideas that um, and the research that Tom Robb Smith and uh, Ryan and their whole creative team brought to the story as well. And then you extract the theme from that, and then that's really your your guidepost. And um, were you how involved were you? I, I'm not sure how it works on a, a TV series, but with casting, I'm thinking of John John Briones, who is just so excellent in this episode. Um, yeah. How did he come again? Aboard? This is why I wanted to direct when I wasn't acting on the project because I wanted to be present for present for or involved with every casting decision in the episode. I wanted to be on every location scout. I wanted to be involved in every detail of the story that I could, and and it really is a testament to Ryan Murphy. Um, John John Briones, who's incredible, I think, as Modesto Conan and Andrew's father in this episode, he was initially brought to my attention by Darren Chris and Tom Rob Smith, who both seen him as the engineer in Miss Saigon on Broadway. And there are a lot of really interesting parallels between that character and Modesto. Um, and uh, I saw his tape, and I thought, this guy, it's him. There's no one else who can do this. This is this is him, and this is someone who didn't have a ton of credits, film and, and, and TV credits to his name. He'd been doing Miss Saigon, I think, believe since the '90s. So, um, and there were names being tossed around for it. But it's a testament to Ryan Murphy that he took the risk on someone quote new, really a journeyman who was given this opportunity and who was really ready for it because that was what was going to be best for the story. Yeah, he's he's really he's really excellent and, and the way that the episode is is shaped and the way that you've uh directed it, I mean it it, it uh, it's such a, an important episode in this series, you know, because we have this reverse chronology, something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is that you start the show um just you know, looking at this monster that you in, in Andrew Keenan and you, you hate him, you hate what he's doing. And then as it works its way back in time, you you gain a sort of sympathy for him. And this is the episode, I think, where it really clicks in a place where you see the human side of him. So I, yeah. I'm curious where you obviously have kind of technical um, things to deal with. There are a lot of interesting shots that I want to talk about in, uh, in this episode. But um, h- how do you work with your actors to... While while considering all that technical stuff to to get that that humanity and that that sort of pathos um, out, I mean, is it hard to balance those things? Um, well, I think we're all human beings at the end of the day, and we're all uh, responsible for and accountable for the choices we make given the circumstances we go through in life. Um, but to me, both Modesto and Andrew were vic- were victims in their own right. Um, Modesto is someone who came from nothing and, 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 and rural Philippines came over with the merchant marines and really had to scrape by and, and do everything himself to pursue the American dream. I mean, he's kind of a Willie Loman in that right. 
And Andrew is someone who was uh, espoused by both of his parents, given the master bedroom, told he was special, told he was it's not enough to be smart. You have to fit in and you can't let people see that you're an outsider. He was caught up in circumstances that were bigger than himself, and he didn't have the freedom to react or respond to those appropriately. And I wanted to get this feeling from the audience that if he just killed his dad, who was so abusive and basically had this entire, you know, verbally, uh, sexually, physically abusive and had the entire family basically held hostage, if he just killed him in, in whatever way that meant, he wouldn't have killed everybody else. Yeah. And so our, our goal was really to dare the audience to sympathize with a monster. Because we're all kids at some point. We're all that impressionable little kid who's looking up at their dad when he's, you know, reading them Vanderbilt and telling them who they have to be in the world and giving him a 14-year-old a brand new 300ZX. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really, um, it, it's unsettling in a way how you, you know, after watching seven episodes of this guy, you're like, oh, now, you know, now I'm on his side. And it's, I think it's really well, well calibrated. Um, and and obviously in working with John John like you, you this was his you know this is this was his his introduction to the show you guys were both sort of new to this new to the group but whereas Darren was you know long in the process and had kind of crafted this yeah. character how do you how do you kind of work with someone who's already sort of in it like that do you just have to kind of trust their choices or do you get to kind of I don't know um oh no i think the fun is collaborating yeah. i mean i i love actors uh, I love when people bring things to the table. I'm a best idea wins kind of guy. And like you said, I came to John John, who, you know, was rightfully nervous about the opportunity. I said, listen, but if, if, if you don't win, I don't win. Like I'm only, I only have your best interest in heart and, and I know you're going to do an incredible job. And he was so fun to collaborate with. And Darren, I've known for years and worked with him as an actor and, um, had, had watched him over the course of the series. Cause I, I, been on set for many of the episodes and I knew the kind of zone he was in. So it was really, I mean, a lot of times it's just about getting out of the actor's way because he's so immersed in it at that point that um, he, he knew more or less what was going on. And then we just got to have fun tweaking and recalibrating and exploring. Yeah, we had him on last week and he was great and very, you know, just really had a lot to say and and, and really like you I think had just had has thought a lot about this and done his research and 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 I asked him, you know, if if there was anything that when he started that he was nervous about like if there was a third rail he was worried about touching or or anything, you know, that could be problematic. Uh, and one thing he brought up, he was like, "Well, you know, I'm a straight man playing this gay guy, um, and and that you know we so we so I had to be careful about that, but also just kind of lean into the performance. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Because I think that you know there's obviously any time this happens, there's some sort of you know whispery kind of thing about who should play who. Um, do you do you do you trouble yourself with that at all? I think I, I can't really imagine anyone other than Darren playing the role. To be honest with you, in this circumstance, I mean, look, we everyone needs opportunities. Period. We won't have a chance to prove ourselves or, 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 you know, get the experience we need to do the work that's expected of us if we're not given opportunity. But I, I truly can't imagine anyone other, and that goes for every minority, every member of the LGBT community. Um, but I, I, you know, if I thought that Darren weren't giving 150% and had, had done all the work and it wasn't just blowing me away literally every take of this 
of this shoot, I, I, I would, you know, maybe think otherwise, but I, I truly can't think of anyone else playing his role. Yeah, I mean, he's he's really something. Um, uh, so I, let's get a little more granular about the episode in particular. Um, there's one shot in particular that that, that Joanna and I uh, were were talking about, um, and it's in it's it's the scene when he gets the car, and the camera stays on on Andrew, young Andrew in the car, and you see in the background, yes. out of focus, this yeah. moment of abuse. And and it's yeah. it's a it's a beautiful I mean a beautifully technically beautiful moment I mean it's a terrifying moment in in terms of the story. Um, when does a shot like that come into your head? I mean, how do you work that out? Um, I had a, a, a great AD on the project, and we would go onto these locations. We spent a day at the house. Um, uh, Dan Lazaro, it's is the name of the AD, and we we just acted out every scene and played every character. <laughs> And we thought about how we wanted to see it and how we wanted it to play out. And I wanted this idea. We, it was important from for Ryan and I to have this idea that he became inured to violence at a very young age. Um, and this was the scene where that was really going to play out. I think everyone is kind of on pins and needles around Modesto in the house, but this scene in particular. And, and that here he is. I mean, imagine being at that impressionable of an age and being given a brand new car when your your older siblings don't even have a car. And in that moment, your dad then grabs your mother by her face and pushes her to the ground. And it was, it, for the story, we shot it different ways, but for the story, I, I had an incredible editor on this episode, Shelley Westerman, who worked on Velvet Goldmine and a lot of the really like formative films of my youth and young manhood. And um, we said, we have to be with Andrew in this moment. And, and thankfully, with the great director of photography, Simon Dennis, we uh, planned to have that option where the violence was out of focus in the background so that we got the impression that it wasn't the first time he'd, he'd been around it and that he was in circumstances that were just way above his caliber of understanding at that age. Yeah, I mean, there obviously there was a lot. And, you know, you have this wonderful young actor, Edward Holdener, uh, playing young Andrew. Yeah. Um, and this is a, you know, this is a kid who has to, I mean, you know, it's all make-believe and there are cameras and, you know, everywhere. But but this is some intense stuff. Uh, what was it? I mean, I'm thinking of that scene. I'm thinking of the scene where it's made pretty explicit that there is sexual abuse happening. Um, what kind of conversations do you have with a young actor about that kind of thing? Ooh, uh, well, let me tell you, Edward is amazing. He, he blew me away from the moment he walked into the room for the audition. I, this was the kid. There was no question. Uh, and he's such a professional and had such a great attitude about everything. And his parents were close by and I would tell, we'd, we'd have a talk, you know, before oftentimes, you know, particularly if there's a parent there, I'll go to them because they have the language and the shorthand with their child to discuss some things better than I do. Um, so I was able to have conversations with them that they would then relate to him. But I also tried, particularly in the sexual abuse scene, to use, let the camera and the lighting do a lot of the work for us in the staging so that things could be implied without ever having to push past the boundary of any actor's comfortability. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it, it, I think it, it feels, um, it doesn't feel exploitative, you know, um, and I'm, I, 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 yeah. it does feel, I don't want to infer for him, but it does feel like Edward, like, he has a kind of understanding of of the larger story and the stakes. I mean, it. it I, I oh, don't know no how, question. Yeah. yeah, very intelligent young man who is so mature for his age and 
was so prepared and so professional and clearly understood the story, understood his part in the story. I mean, for someone that age to really get the big picture is is doubly impressive. Yeah, I mean, really, he's he's quite quite a find. Um, yeah, and and you know, a, a lot of what we've talked about um, on this podcast in terms of this show uh, has to do with identity and, and and not just sexuality, but certainly racial identity. And this is the episode uh, where a lot of that is sort of explicated. It, it's it's really dealt with in in a lot of ways for the first time in the series. Um, and there was one moment in particular that Joanna and I zoomed in on that um, I, I wanted to hear sort of your theory about um, when uh, Modesto, when the the, the uh, proverbial shit has hit the fan at the office yeah. and he's kind of fleeing, he has these little moments of interaction with a secretary who it seems is the only other person, you know, Asian person in the office and she's sort of helping him. Yeah. How, how deliberate is that? Like, what were your thoughts about sort of those little moments? Because to me, they spoke volumes, but maybe I was inferring too much. I don't know. No, no. First of all, she was fantastic. We were all obsessed with her. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my, my idea was that there was a sexual relationship, mm-hmm. a sexual nature to their relationship, whether it had been acted out on or not, you know, uh, I didn't want to make that particularly clear, but there was, um, you know, uh, Modesto's second wife was an Asian woman who, after he left Marianne, um, and uh, not that that was directly affected that, but I wanted there to be um, a history between them and a very specific relationship between them, and I wanted that story to be able to to be told subtly, and, and but to be there, so I'm glad you picked up on it. Yeah, no, I think it's it's one of uh, of a lot of great little details in this episode. Um, you know, another one being uh, the posters in in uh, young Andrew's room. Oh, I'm so glad you like those. Uh, we, those were a labor of love, getting the approval on all the different posters and getting the right ones. Um, but um, I'm gl- I'm really glad you noticed those. Well, tell me a little bit about your choices because we had Chariots of Fire, we have uh, Brides Had Revisited, the '81 miniseries, right? Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, that was obviously a very important. I don't know if you also noticed the teddy bear um, oh, yes. that mm-hmm. young Andrew yes. carries around. That that was a callback to Bride said revisited as well. It was a very integral part of his um, youth. That book and that series. So we wanted to include that. You know, obviously anything that had some any kind of inkling of a gay theme to it, um, but that was also perceived as very. Um, uh, ennobled or, or upper crust or very tasteful or chic. Um, we wanted to include elements of that as well. And there were, there were other posters as well that the brilliant Tom Rots, Rob Smith, the, the writer, had put in there. Um, and we, the ones that you see are the ones that uh, were on his list, but we ultimately were able to get approved as well. And did you have, um, how much control did you have over the song choices, for example? I mean, you know, when Andrew's at the party dancing to Devo. Oh, well, that was actually a Ryan Murphy call, Devo. I think the rest of the music was mine. I think Brad Brad Simpson came up with, and then I was able to f- find a place for um, Hazy Shade of Winter, the Bangles cover. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. Um, I had a Jody Watley song <laughs> um, when he's getting ready for the party, mm-hmm. uh, looking for a new love. Um, but they were using that on Pose, so we ended up going with Samantha Fox, Touch Me, after that. Um, it's That's so fun. I mean, that to me, the music is, is some of the most fun aspect of it. Um, and because I knew it was Devo, um, and it was that, <laughs> that kind of crazy beat, um, it was I was able to, to, to 
to let that influence the camera work as well. You know, some of the dolly moves and the fast push-ins in and out and the cranes from above and things like that were really, I think, influenced by the song itself. How how did you find it? I mean, I know you said you shadowed uh, two other directors and you've obviously been on sets mm-hmm. for many years. Um, how did you find kind of figuring out those mechanics of, of dollies and all that stuff? Did it did it come naturally? Or? Well, I mean, there are directors you work with who have no idea what a lens is or what a uh-huh. size of a lens is. You know, I, this particular story to me, I wanted to approach like a Sidney Lumet movie. Um, and so the, I, and Simon Dennis is a brilliant director of photography. So I was never worried about, oh, my gosh, is this going to be the right side? You know, w- that was a conversation we were able to have take to take and scene to scene. Um, but uh, like you said, I've been on, on sets for almost 20 years. So I had some knowledge of, of, of how things worked. And I'd, and thankfully shadowed a couple of directors. So I saw the types of moves they were using. And Ryan in the tone meetings also specific about the type of camera work he wants per the episode, which is really helpful. Um, so this was such a psychological ep- episode that for me, a lot of it was navigating the story and the central question of what makes one person a creator and one a killer. And well, with the answer being hard work, you know, yeah. one person believed that they were the special person who the world owed fame and success to. And one person, um, success brought out the worst in him. And then you have Johnny who's, who's dealt with this difficult hand who you'd think could never be a success given the life is given, but who has this mother who instills a work ethic in him and who really approaches uh, fashion as a craft, whereas he approached it as a lifestyle and his art plus her work ethic that she instilled in him is what created the brand Versace. Well, yeah, we should talk about the, that, that, the, the creator half of this episode or, or, or portion of this episode. Yeah. Uh, we go back to the fifties in, in Calabria, Italy. Uh, you know, we're so, you, 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 you were tasked, uh, unlike a lot of the other directors on the show with two very distinct time periods. Um, yeah. was that, was that a fun challenge or like how, how, how much? I was dealt a lot of fun challenges yeah. for a first time director. I... And I'm so grateful <laughs> for it because I got so many of them out of the way right away. I had two under, you know, minor protagonists. Mm-hmm. Kids who are, are work, can only work a specific set of hours and a specific set of time. Thankfully, they were both incredible and very professional, so we got it all done. And then I was given, uh, we were in three different countries. We were in uh, La Jolla, we were in Manila, we were in Baliwag, uh, Philippines, we were in um, Calabria, Italy. Uh, at one point, we were in Milan. I don't know if that scene, I don't think that scene made it into the final cut. So multiple countries, multiple time periods, um, you know, a lot of really interesting challenges. And, and at that point, I was just so thankful that Ryan had asked me to be a part of it back in December because I was familiar enough with the story and had read the Maureen Orth book and read a lot of, read a book on Versace. And so I kind of, um, was able to keep track of it all in my mind. Um, so how long are, did you, you had to, sh- to shoot this? I mean, what's the schedule like? Because it's a lot. I think our, I, I think uh, we shot this episode in 12 days. Okay. It, the first cut was uh, about 90 minutes long. Uh, so I had to cut out uh, with Shelley Westerman, who's incredible. We had to cut out half an hour. Wow. Which is, you know, a third of what we shot, mm-hmm. which is hard, but um, it just became so clear to us in post what was central to the theme and what and what wasn't, do you, um, and what carried the story forward and what didn't. Do you think we'll ever get director's cuts of these episodes? Because I'd, I'd heard from other other people we've talked to that uh, Darren in particular had mentioned this that like there's a lot that you know unfortunately had to get 
to get left behind. But now I'm so curious to see all this stuff. I hope they do. I mean, I think that'd be a really interesting thing to release is, is, is to see, you know, maybe when they, you know, uh, release the whole series at once, uh, um, and you can buy it online or on DVD, maybe they'll, uh, uh, be willing to do an entire director's cut because that, that's really fascinating to me. I think you would see a lot of things. And the hardest thing is being an actor myself and understanding that there are actors who've done this brilliant work who are in a scene that doesn't necessarily feed the theme of the piece and, unfortunately has to fall by the wayside you know you feel really guilty about that but um so if nothing else i'd love for people to see their work uh speaking of work has has the bug bit you are you going to be doing a lot more directing now i Yes, I would love to. Uh, I mean, and I've, I've, I've been offered a couple of opportunities. I'm being a little bit choosy about it just because I was so spoiled with this project. I mean, when you're, when you're working with Ryan Murphy, you really, you really are working with the best people that the industry has to offer, both between the camera department, many of whom I'd worked with on different Ryan Murphy projects over the years, so I knew and had a shorthand with. Um, the production designer, Jamie Walker-McCall, I mean, what she did... I, if you look at that scene that was basically our heart of darkness scene at the end, the confrontation between Andrew and Modesto um, and Baliwag, I mean, that, that was an amazing set she built. Um, and, and Simon Dennis, who's an incredible uh, director of photography, and their post department, Alexis Martin-Woodall, does, works miracles in that post department. Um, is so brilliant at what she does. And uh, like I said, my editor, Shelley Westerman, it's, just an incredible dream team of people to get to work with. So I wasn't just going to jump into the next job just because it was there. I, I wanted to make sure it was a story that I felt as passionate about as I did this story. Yeah, you you you, you were spoiled. And, and and look, it's 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 such a, a defining episode of the show. So, you know, uh, big congrats from us. And, and we really appreciate you coming Thank on and you. talking to us about it. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it. And um Maybe we'll be chatting again on another podcast about another episode of a Ryan Murphy show. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) All right. Until then, thanks, Matt. Thank you, Richard. So, so Richard, is there anything that you want to highlight for our listeners that they might find from you on VanityFair.com? Um, just, you know, my usual reviews and things. Uh, we're getting into the spring slash summer movie season, so there's some big stuff, but some small stuff, too. So just go find me on VF.com. And how about you? You can also, <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I will be uh, at South by Southwest in Austin, so I'll yes. have some coverage there. You can also, uh, you know, if you if you want to listen to two of us talk about the award season over on Little Gold Men, I don't know uh, if you guys already listened to that, but uh, I believe we will already be talking about Oscars 2019. Because we're insane. Show, so we are crazy people. Uh, Richard, can, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. I am at Joe Wrote This. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth, produced by Dave Gonzalez, with editorial support from Katie Rich. Till the finale, we will see you then. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.